Um, would you turn with me to Matthew 26 and verse 1? Matthew 26 and verse 1. And when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that the Passover is coming in two days' time, and the Son of Man is being handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people were gathered in the residence of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they planned to lay hands on Jesus by stealth that they might kill him. But they were insisting, not during the feast, lest it create uproar among the people. When Jesus was in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive anointing oil and poured it over his head while he was reclining. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant and said, Why this waste? Surely this could have been sold for a considerable amount and the money given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why cause trouble for the woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this anointing oil on my body in preparation for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she did will be spoken about in remembrance of her. Then one of the twelve... Judas Iscariot went to the high priest and said, What will you give me if I hand him over to you? And they stood him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he kept looking for a good time to hand him over. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in all the things that have been going on for each of us, in the busyness and the tiredness, the demands upon our time and our energy, uh, we know that the most important thing we can do is listen to you. So this morning we pray, would you address us in your word, help us to understand why you have caused this to be written for us, and would you please shape us into the image of our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. The gospel you and I have to preach to the world is not a tragedy, but a gospel. It's not the message of a good man, even the very best man, taken down by those who had been baying for his blood for quite some time. It is the message of the Son of Man, fulfilling the purpose for which he had come, at every point in control of the events happening around him. The Lord, so committed to saving his people from their sins, that he walks into the flashpoint the point at which the opposition to the will of God is most intense and he does what he came to do. Jesus was never a victim. He wasn't overtaken by events over which he had no control. I love those lines from the song Jerusalem. I'm sure you know them. See the king who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. As we move into the story of those last few days of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, the extraordinary comfort and encouragement is that he let us do all this so that he could save us. As the tension builds in these last chapters of Matthew's Gospel, that's what we need to see. 
in the light of all that Jesus has said up to this point, in the light of prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament, the events cannot be read as a tragedy, but as a gospel. This is what he had planned. And at every point he is in control. The plotting, the misunderstanding, the betrayal, later the injustice and what the theologian Origen once called the utterly vile death of the cross. This is how he saves us. And that extraordinary news and the summons to repentance and faith that accompanies it is our gospel. The background to the events which begin to unfold in Matthew 26 is the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. The last great teaching block in Matthew's gospel had concluded with Jesus talking about the Son of Man coming in his glory with all the angels with him and sitting on his glorious throne. The great final judgment with the Son of Man seated there in unimaginable splendour, majesty and authority. And when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that the Passover is coming in two days' time and the Son of Man is being handed over to be crucified. One of the dangers of reading small pieces of scripture at a time and the chapter divisions that we've inserted into the text is that you can miss things like that. The monumental irony that takes place in Matthew 26. The Son of Man who is being handed over to be crucified is the one who will come in glory with all his angels and will be seated on his glorious throne. They really don't have the faintest idea who they're dealing with, do they? When the chief priests and the elders of the people gather at Caiaphas's place and agree together that the time has come, that Jesus must be taken out, we'll need to be careful, we'll need to wait for the right moment, we must get him now though and kill him, they have no idea who they are dealing with. They think they are in control. They think they've got all the bases covered, the brilliant strategy, the upper hand. They'll avoid any conflict by doing it away from the crowds. But it was all the most fragile illusion. As David put it in Psalm 2, the people's plot in vain, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now we need to remember that when we hear the grand claims of those who today want to dismiss Jesus, who gather together and plan to remove all trace of him from public life, who try to discredit his teaching and substitute their own words and judgments for his. They have no idea who they are dealing with. And there is a reckoning. The very same one they despise will come in his glory with all his angels with him. Despite all their influence and power and strategy, despite their use of education systems and information providers, no matter how many victories they have in parliaments and synods and courts, they are not in control. And they will not escape the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They are, in that sense, just like the high priests and the elders of the people who were, as one writer puts it, unwitting instruments in God's plan to exalt Jesus. The judgment the chief priests and elders had made about Jesus was shallow and illusory. They thought 
He was just a nuisance they could relatively easily dispose of, but they were wrong. They did not know that they were dealing with the gentle but glorious Son of Man. Their hatred had blinded them. And lest we think that is simply a problem out there with those who oppose Jesus without a clue that he is the one who holds their lives and future in his hand, as this story unfolds, we see the disciples distancing themselves from Jesus' plan to save and one of their number abandoning their fellowship and betraying him. The incident in Simon's house in Bethany is odd in a number of ways, isn't it? It happens in the house of Simon the leper, perhaps no longer a leper, but always remembered as one. The woman at the centre of the action is never named, at least not in Matthew's Gospel. She comes and makes this extravagant gesture. It's recklessly excessive. The perfume or anointing oil she brought and poured over Jesus' head that night was worth the equivalent of a year's salary for a labourer. What was she doing? Was she out of her mind? She evidently considered Jesus' worth far more than this phenomenally expensive perfume. But as Matthew tells the story, while she is important, she's not meant to be the focus of our attention. The focus of attention in Matthew's Gospel lies with the reaction of the disciples. They make their judgment about what she's done without asking Jesus, you might have noticed. John's Gospel informs us that the leading voice at this point was Judas. He presents as one with a social conscience, uh, a warrior for social justice. Why this waste? Surely this could have been sold for a considerable amount and the money given to the poor. This act of extravagant devotion was offensive to self-righteous Judas. But John's record of this encounter makes clear there's more going on than a preoccupation with the needs of the poor. He said this, John informs us, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. His focus was not on the poor, but on himself. Imagine what he could have done with so much money. He'd been making his association with Jesus pay throughout his time as a disciple, looking interested, looking pious, indistinguishable from the rest, but with something else going on in his heart. Not the slightest interest in why this woman might have thought this was a good thing to do. He will evaluate her action by his own criteria and he'll make it sound like he is the virtuous one. Virtue signaling is not a new thing, is it? What the woman has done is wasteful and irresponsible. I know what she should have done. And it appears he carried the day. All the disciples are furious and Jesus knew it. Now, two things become immediately clear in Jesus' response to the complaint of Jesus and the disciples. We see his gentleness towards this woman. His question, why cause trouble for the woman, is not really a question, is it? It's a call to leave her alone. You might judge this a waste, but I judge it a beautiful thing. Jesus tells them. They spoke about the poor as a, as a kind of generality, as a, as a kind of abstract but Jesus spoke of her, the woman in the room, who had taken such risks to be there, 
who considered him far more valuable than this costly perfume. This woman and her extravagant act of devotion, at this point, in this moment of time, having told them what Jesus had told them, perhaps just hours before, what she did was not only right, it was beautiful. And so she cannot be dismissed as out of touch with God's plan and purpose. And she will not be forgotten when his gospel is proclaimed in all the world. And there's the second thing. We see his gentleness to the woman, but we see his focus on the task that lies ahead. Whether she understood this or not, we don't know. But Jesus understood that what she had done was to prepare him for his burial. The Jewish practice was to anoint a body after death, when it was buried. Part of their respect for the body, which would one day be raised, an act of kindness that could not be repaid and was all the more precious because of that. But Jesus knew that after his death, there would be no time for such customary practices. He would die the death of a criminal and no such kindness was afforded to criminals. He would be buried in a rush before the Sabbath begins. Nothing could be done until the first day of the week. He knew that when he died, no one would get a chance then to anoint his broken body with fragrant oils and perfumes. And this is what she has done. You see, everything now is narrowing to this. He will die the death of a criminal on a cross. That is how he will save us. The words of the disciples might sound reasonable. Um, after all, the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars today would have, been, would have fed a lot of hungry people, provided clothing and shelter for many more. But those words showed a hard-heartedness towards this woman as well as a blindness to the significance of the moment and what was unfolding before their eyes. I'm sure you know it's... Uh, perfectly possible to sound entirely reasonable and to be completely wrong and out of step with God's purpose. The debates in the New South Wales Parliament this week in favour of assisted dying are further proof of that. And there was plenty of evidence of that last week in the General Synod as well. And the antidote to that is always to stop speaking and listen to Jesus' words. There is, of course, nothing at all wrong with caring about the poor. Jesus had not only demonstrated that in his own ministry, he taught his disciples to open their eyes to those in need around them. We shouldn't misuse Jesus' words, you always have the poor with you, as some kind of inevitability that means we can overlook the hungry and the homeless and the hurting in our churches or in our community, or in our world. How we treat the poor and vulnerable around us is a pretty good barometer of spiritual health. In fact, the Old Testament passage Jesus appears to be alluding to here makes clear that the ongoing presence of the poor among God's people is matched by an ongoing responsibility of care. In Deuteronomy 15, following the command, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, God says to Moses, there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, 
to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus was not dismissing the needs of the poor, but at this moment something much more pressing was happening. What he was about to do to save us. And in any case, Judas was only using these high-sounding words as a cloak for something much more sinister, the real preoccupation of his heart. And that becomes obvious in the last few verses of the passage. Two days before Jesus was handed over to be crucified, the chief priests and the elders were plotting. The disciples, on this occasion led by Judas, were misunderstanding. But Judas himself was doing something even worse. The fact that Judas was one of the 12 disciples, one of those who'd been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, makes what he does all the more scandalous, doesn't it? It's important to realise that he took the initiative. See, the chief priests didn't come to him. They didn't observe him as the weak link amongst the disciples, seek to play on that, isolate him, and then make him an offer he couldn't refuse. No, he went to them. And he asks, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? What was it that turned a disciple into a traitor? The question he asks gives us one answer. What will you give me? Judas, you see, was in it for the money. John suggests he was always in it for the money. The desire for money had engaged his heart far more intensely than the teaching of Jesus And John's gospel will give us an even deeper answer. It was the evil one, the devil, bloated with his own delusion that he could derail God's saving plan for his people, who had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. But why now? Why why at this point? Had the incident with the woman at Simon's house proven to be the last straw for Judas? Was it the way Jesus had applauded her action, allowed such extravagance, as if he mattered more than the poor? Was it that this talk about being anointed for his burial made his impending death staggeringly real, at least for Judas for the first time? Was it that Jesus was proving not to be the Messiah Judas had hoped he would be? Was it the mention of a mission to the nations a message proclaimed in the whole world. Then why did he not just walk away? Others had done that before him. John tells us that at one point, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He could have just walked away. Why go the extra step of offering to hand him over to his enemies? Someone has written, despair and disillusionment more naturally lead to abandonment but it is anger that leads to betrayal. So what could have made Judas so angry that he didn't just walk away, but walk straight round to Caiaphas's place? And we're brought back to what John's Gospel tells us was the characteristic of Judas' involvement with Jesus from the outset. Of course, the others didn't know it at the time, but it all became clear with hindsight His association with Jesus was not about Jesus in the end. It was about him. Judas's self-interest in Simon's house, clothed with the high-sounding language of concern for the poor, had driven his behaviour all the way along. 
Perhaps it was more than money. Being seen as a disciple made him feel important. It made others take notice of him. It enabled him to live a comfortable life, really. Squirreling away a little bit for himself. Not ostentatiously, of course. Not in a way that would detract attention. But always with an eye to his own comfort and security. Not the wholehearted, unrestrained devotion to Jesus that the woman showed that night. What Judas saw in Simon's house was that Jesus' mission was hurtling towards an ending Judas wanted no part of. He saw now that his own interests were not served by the direction Jesus was heading. His supply was being cut off. So there was only one card left to play. There are all sorts of warnings there, aren't there? About self-interest clothed as religion or as a social conscience or as a voice of reason. This passage, Matthew 26, is full of irony. The leaders who thought they were in control when it was the Son of Man they are dealing with, the gathering in the residence of the high priest, blind to reality, and the gathering in Simon's house where something is done that is much more real and will always be remembered. But there is one last irony. When Judas goes to the chief priest and makes his offer, what he is given is just 30 pieces of silver. It was equivalent to about a month or maybe two of a labourer's wage. More tellingly, it was the price of an injured slave in Exodus 21. The woman at Simon's house had brought anointing oil that could have been sold for a large sum. John tells us 300 denarii. But Judas will settle for 30 pieces of silver. The prophet Zechariah spoke of that sum with contempt. It was the lordly price, the wage the sheep sheep traders paid him for his services in chapter 11. And the Lord said, throw it to the potter. But it was enough for Judas. And when he accepted it, he had completed the journey from disciple to traitor. As the last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry unfold for us in Matthew's Gospel, some might see a series of events spinning out of control. The chief priests are plotting. The disciples are confused. Judas, now looking for a good time to hand Jesus over to his enemies. But remember who remains at the centre of all this. He is the glorious Son of Man who at the end will come in his glory with all his angels and sit on his glorious throne. On the surface, it might look as if his enemies have the upper hand. He will be betrayed. He will be crucified, just as he said. It will seem at that moment as if the chief priests and the elders have won. But his death will not be the end. The tomb will soon be empty and he will be taken up in glory. We need to remember that for its own sake because this is what he did to save us. This is our gospel. We need to remember it true too when things look like they're spinning out of control in our world. For he is still the son of man. He came to save us from our sins and he will come again in glory. 
Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for all that he did. And we thank you that he did it so that he could save us. And as saved people, we pray, would you help us to trust him? Not to be a distracted, confused or frightened by what's happening around us, but to trust in him. For we ask it in his name.